This past Friday, we had broom ball. It was very enjoyable. I have to admit, one of my greatest enjoyments of broom ball was watching you guys fall. I saw uh, Michael took a spill. That was actually a little hard to watch. <laughs> it was hard to experience, I'm sure. Um, but that was really enjoyable. Um, thank you, Joel and Nick Fong. Where's, is Joel Helveston here? Joel's not here, I don't think. Uh, for planning that, that was fantastic. It was a great time. Um, be looking out for more events like that. We're still working on having a chili, chili dog event also at a park or other venue. Don't ask me to explain it. It's, it's hot dogs and dogs, like animals, pets. Okay, I did explain it. Yeah, but we don't eat the, we only eat one of them. The first, we only eat the former one, not the second. Yeah, just to be clear. Um, and, you know, speaking of watching people suffer, I know people falling in broom ball was a way of suffering. We are finishing up the book of Job, but we are not going to finish it today. Mo is actually going to preach on um, Job 42 um, next Sunday. So we're going to continue going through this book. Um, and I'm going to preach on 41. And so chapter 41. And so I want you to imagine, I've been listening to this uh, History Tellers podcast. I want you to imagine um, that you've been given a secret. And the secret is about another person. And that secret would make, will make a big difference in that person's life. But you've been for a big forbidden to say anything to the person about the secret, okay? And that secret could be something about um, the backstory um, of a relative, like that person had a secret affair, or it could be, or the relative had a secret affair, or a crime that someone was wrongly accused of. Um, but in every, in any of those instances, whatever the secret is, you are forbidden from saying something to that person about the nature of what's going on. And so if you're in that position and you couldn't, tell anyone the secret, how would, you, how, would you, how would you communicate something? What would you be able to say that would give the person some comfort because the person's going through suffering? What, what would it be that you would tell them? And what I want to propose is that God's response to Job, God is in this position where he, is, he knows a secret about Job's suffering. And we'll explore later why he can't say it. But what then can he say? What then can God say to Job about a suffering? And that's what I believe, you know, chapters 38 through 41 are about, is God's response to Job when he can't fully reveal, has chosen not to fully reveal uh, the nature of what's going on. And so if you guys turn with me, we're in chapter 40. We're going to look at 41. We're going to look at all of um, God's response. But I want to read, um, read from parts of 41 to get kind of a sense of what's happening. Okay. And I want to start um, from verse 1. So this is the, toward the end, this is actually the last chapter of God's speech to Job. And to give you the background again on Job, um, if you're joining us, um, Job, has, Job is part of this uh, cosmic bet where Satan has been looking around for a target. And actually God selects Job, this person who's righteous, as the target. Um, and he loses everything. He loses all of his wealth. Um, he loses his children, and then you have these cycles of accusations and attack from Job's friends, and then Job's defense, and then finally you have uh, now God speaking. And so this is one of the last things that God starts saying in 41 verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose, or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you 
to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? <laughs> will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among those merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or with his, or his mighty frame or his goodly frame, with, with his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made, up of ro- is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as wooden wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Okay, I just read the entire chapter. You get this picture of Leviathan, um, and there's these fascinating images that are happening here. For instance, um, at one point I was kind of confused whether it's his teeth or his back, but um, (laughs) his teeth are terror, so his teeth are crazy, and then his back is made of rows of shields. And the picture, the image you're getting from Leviathan is that he's impenetrable. There's nothing you can do against him. His armor, there's nothing you can do against his armor, um, and then he's just this giant beast, and in 32, for instance, it has this shining wake, and you think he's, uh, he's, he's a white-haired man. Well, he's talking about all the, um, the rapids, right? It's the, uh, the froth of the, of the water that makes it white, okay? Um, and so these are the images. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about what, what does Leviathan represent, okay? What does Leviathan represent? I know it's not the most important thing. Um, well, actually, I would argue it's actually, it's actually fairly important what he represents, Okay, and I'm going to give five suggestions for what he represents and go through each one because I think this has to do with the nature of God's response. First off, um, that Leviathan does represent an animal. That's one option. Number two, that he represents a person. It's some kind of uh, people that's represented in the Leviathan. Or 
that's actually number three, nations. That Leviathan represents nations. And then last, Leviathan as a supernatural power. Okay, does Leviathan represent some kind of supernatural power? So I'm going to go through each one um, and start off with number one, animals as an unpredictable force of nature that God reigns over. Okay, so first off, this is not the first animal that shows up in God's response to Job. And as Mo was preaching last Sunday, I was thinking, because he said, you know, it's all animals. And I'm like, yeah, it's all animals. <laughs> well, in chapter 38, it's like natural forces, right? It's uh, whirlwinds. It's shut this. Well, he speaks out of the whirlwind. He's commanded the morning. So 38 has to do with like natural, like natural things, whether it's rain, recesses of the sea, those type of things. And in 39, 40, and 41, the next three chapters, it's all animals. And so let me give you some of those animals that are happening. Um, beginning in 39, there's mountain goats. There's a wild donkey. There's an ostrich that Mo pointed out has no wisdom, and it doesn't because it says that in verse 17. Um, there's a horse, and there's hawks. And so these are all, I want you to notice, these are all undomesticated animals. None of these animals uh, Job owned. I mean, Job owned a lot of animals, including camels and sheep, but none of these Job owned. These are all wild animals. So what could be the message that God is indicating to us? He has power over the untamed world. You know, Job had domesticated animals. Most people have domesticated animals. God has power over the undomesticated, over the wild animals. He's able to tame the wild things. That's the message. Okay, and so none of these points are actually exclusive of each other. It's certainly, I think it certainly means that. However, what if there's a deeper meaning to what these animals also represent? And that's number two. Let's try the next one. What about animals as violent men? Notice now in chapter 39 when it talks about the horse, okay? Uh, verse 22, about the horse, it says, he laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Now, what kind of horse is, really? I mean, okay, maybe. Maybe horses don't turn back from swords, but this horse sounds like he likes swords, okay? He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He, he likes to confront swords. It's kind of strange. Uh, also notice, again, that the ostrich deals cruelly with her young. And even throughout this, uh, God's response, even in 30, chapter 38, you have motifs of good and evil, right? In 38, 15, from the wicked, their light is withheld and their up, the uplifted arm is broken. So throughout God's response to Job, there are these elements of this fight between good and evil and also personification. What's personification? The giving of uh, interpersonal qualities, character qualities, to an inanimate object, or in this case, animals, okay? Things that we don't normally give human attributes to. Um, and that's what's happening. I mean, pets notwithstanding, I know we give human qualities to our pets, but, you know, there's something specific happening here where God is describing the ostrich and the horse as either violent or cruel. Um, and there is a precedent within Scripture of that. There are examples in Scripture. For example, in Genesis, Ishmael is described, in the prophecy about Ishmael, he's described as a wild donkey of a man and someone who is isolated, okay? And there is a wild donkey um, in Job 39. The ostrich is described as a lonely, cruel, and untamed creature. There's, a, there's an, uh, an ostrich, actually, in Lamentations, okay? The daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. That's Lamentations 4.3. Okay, so there is reference to cruel ostriches in the rest of Scripture, which seems crazy. But one of the ways we um, try to understand what Scripture means is by other sections of Scripture. And so uh, at the very least, Lamentations is looking at Job and being like, okay, all right, cruel ostriches. I'll talk about cruel ostriches and how they are alienated because they're in the wild. Isaiah 34, 13, 
Um, again, this motif of isolation, thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its forests. It shall be the haunt of jackals and an abode for ostriches. Again, the ostrich as a alienated, shameful creature. Okay, so is it possible that these animals represent persons, that they represent particular individuals? It's possible. But what might be even more likely is animals as these violent foreign nations or even more specifically, these animals as pagan gods, right? Because Ishmael ends up becoming the Ishmaelites. And in Genesis, a person isn't, is never just an individual. It also becomes a nation. And so what if, that, what if that's the case? And I would also point out to you um, in, verse, in chapter 40, there's some interesting things going on with Behemoth. There's another animal in, uh, in chapter 40. Um, and Behemoth, Mo talked about as representing a hippo. Now, are there, um, are there nations that worshipped a hippo? Yes, there are. Well, in Egypt, the hippo um, resembles its, I think I'm going to hopefully try to say this white, right, white, um, Tawaret, okay, Tawaret. It's a bipedal female hippopotamus and has the back and tail of a Nile crocodile, which is kind of interesting because that helps to explain why in verse 17 it says he makes his tail stiff like a cedar, right? So, Crocodiles can kind of do that. Um, and so this could be a reference to an, uh, an Egyptian god, okay, behemoth. And that god, that the Lord, the God of Israel, is superior to this uh, hippo-looking creature, to the God of Egypt. Now, what then, as we get into 41, does, Le- does Leviathan represent? Okay, what's this creature that we're talking about here? And people talk about if it does represent an actual animal, that it could be some kind of alligator or crocodile, right? The way it's speaking. Um, And if it were a crocodile, then it could represent the Egyptian god Sobek. Okay, Sobek is the crocodile god, which also, and Sobek also represents the four elemental gods, including the god of fire. So in 41, where it says, okay, uh, verse 19, out of his mouth go flaming torches. Like, he's a fire-breathing crocodile, right? Now, that could also represent that Egyptian god. Then there's one more option that's a little more contemporary with when Job was written, and that is Leviathan as a creature of the sea, and that's uh, Tiamat, the Babylonian primordial goddess of creation, who's the symbol of the chaos of primordial creation. So it's possible that... One of the things that Leviathan represents is, is, uh, is the Babylonian god. And so when you're trying to decipher all this, this is like kind of overwhelming, right? All these different possibilities that it represents. The one thing I would, one thing I would note in 41, when it describes Leviathan, it doesn't really seem to represent any kind of actual creature because we don't have fire-breathing crocodiles. In fact, the closest thing it represents is some kind of dragon, right? And someone in our life group this week talked about Godzilla. It's like a Godzilla-type creature, that lives in the ocean, because he lives in the sea. Now, then the question becomes, is there a reference to any kind of uh, Godzilla or sea dragon in the rest of scripture? Is there, is there, are there other places that reference a Leviathan? Well, in Psalms, you do have some reference to a Leviathan, so some giant sea creature. But the one that's most specific, that's closest to what's described in Job, is in chapter 27 of Isaiah. Okay. And chapter 27 of Isaiah is kind of an interesting section, and it's really important when you look through 
um, when you do cross-references, right, you can, your Bible will have in the footnotes some cross-references that relate to other scripture passages that are connected. It's actually really important as you read those passages to be like, wait, where is this, what was the idea behind both passages? So when you read Isaiah, there is actually this apocalypse, this end times that is being forecast, that's being prophesied um, by Isaiah, okay? And that, little, that kind of apocalypse has to do with judgment against evil. And that's kind of the whole idea of the book of, of, of Isaiah. And so as it's prophesying about evil being judged, let me read to you Isaiah 27.1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> you know, there's some, there's three images that are going on there. Number one, Leviathan is, is repeated twice. And then Leviathan's a fleeing serpent. Leviathan has a twisting serpent and the dragon that's in the sea. It sounds very, very similar to the Leviathan that's described in Job 41, who is a fire-breathing dragon that lives in the sea. And so when you look at Isaiah and you're thinking like, what does Isaiah mean by this? He's probably talking about Satan. He's probably talking about Satan. And so, uh, and that brings us to our last uh, possibility, that this Leviathan, this animal, is a supernatural force of evil. It represents Satan. And you actually don't even have to necessarily go to Isaiah to see Leviathan as Satan, because Satan has already appeared as a character within the book of Job. He's in the very beginning, okay? He's in the very beginning of this. And he doesn't show up at the end. He doesn't show up in chapter 42, but he's clearly part of the backdrop of the story. And so if we are going to think, hey, you know, what if it is Leviathan? I just, I, some of the clues I would say that, that indicate to us is that this is a supernatural creature. He's not, he's not meant to represent any kind of natural creature. Um, what else indicates this? Well, in the beginning of chapter 41, it says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Right? It's like, and it's kind of joking, right? And, and, and Rich in our group was, was, in our life group was talking about um, verse 5, you know, would you put him on a leash for your girls? You know, can you make him a pet? Is he like a puppy? You know, make Leviathan kind of like a puppy. And he's like the anti-puppy. He's like the opposite of a puppy. He's being sarcastic, right? He's kind of making fun of this. But the idea is you don't make a covenant with him. But, but what if God did? <laughs> what if God made a pact with Leviathan? What if God said, I'm going to make a bet with you, Leviathan, that I can defeat you by choosing a champion? Because that's exactly what, God does in the beginning of the book of Job. He says, Satan, you can do whatever you want. And Satan means adversary, right? Satan, you can do whatever you want. Um, just don't, don't actually touch him. And then, then you can touch him. But, you, but part of the implicit as part of this pact is that Job cannot know what the bargain is, right? Job can't know what the bargain is because if Job knows, if he's in on it, then it defeats the whole bargain. And so if God were going to try to communicate what had happened because he was supposed to keep it secret. What would he do? Well, maybe he would give an image like a Leviathan. Okay, and maybe this is not convincing to you, but let, let, so let me keep going. Okay, let me read uh, the end of 41. This is actually the last thing that God says. It says he, and it's describing Leviathan, because right in 33, it says, on earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. And then the last thing it says, he, which refers to Leviathan, sees everything that is high. Now let's just pause there. Okay, it's a creature of the sea. <laughs> he doesn't see anything on high. You know what I mean? He's in the water. He just sees what's in the water. 
So this, see, this feels like something more to this creature. He sees everything that is high, and then it says he is king over all the sons of pride. And king is an interesting word when it comes to the ancient Near East because it does mean to rule, but it also means like source, like the one from whom things come. Okay, king and father have some similar ideas. And so what does it mean for him to be king over all the sons of pride? Anything that's prideful, he rules over. Okay, and, and, and then you think, well, isn't that, a, isn't that a good thing? Isn't it a good thing? I mean, this, couldn't this be a good creature? Uh, I would say no. <laughs> no, I mean, in part because of the Isaiah passage, but let's turn back to Isaiah 40. Okay, um, and in Isaiah 40, you know, God is continuing on and he's explaining to Job what's happening. Well, not explaining, but he's, he's, tell, he's responding to Job. And he says in verse 10, he's speaking to Job now, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Okay? That doesn't sound like pride is good. And then it repeats it. It says in 12, Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Oh, that's interesting, right? Because in Hebrew poetry, you rhyme ideas. Proud and wicked are being rhymed together. That means there's something about those who are prideful and something about those who are wicked, and they're kind of similar. They're kind of related. And then it says, hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And so this is rhetorical, right? God is saying, Job, if you can do all this stuff, you know, do it. You know, tread, tread down the wicked, look down everyone who's proud. And clearly God is talking about himself that he's the one who's capable of doing this. And there are other references to this idea of treading down the wicked and your own right hand saving. That's a lot of that's in Isaiah. It also shows up in Isaiah about righteousness and salvation and God's right hand saving. Okay, so God is clearly talking about himself and he's talking about I can be the champion. So it's nothing good that's happening with those who are the sons of pride. That is not a good thing. And that's one indication to me that this is about Satan because ultimately Satan is the most prideful creature. Okay, he is the most prideful creature and the father, the father of all the sons of pride in that in Ephesians 2, for instance, it talks about how we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And as, as Tabitha talked about, we live, under the, we live under the reign of the prince of this world. You could say the, the king of this world, the king over all the sons of pride. We are under his influence. So what am I saying here? God is trying to tell Job, you went up against Leviathan. That is who has been attacking you. And he is an almost impenetrable creature. He cannot be defeated by anyone mortal. And yet you triumphed. And the reason why, Job, you triumphed is because you chose me. I chose you as a champion. I chose you, Job, as a champion. And you chose me. You trusted me. And that is, that is just mind-boggling. <laughs> that is just mind-boggling to me because he's talking in, in, verse, in chapter 40, he's talking to Job about looking on the proud and bringing them low. But that's exactly what Jesus does. And you, you, you think, where, where, how did I come up with Jesus? Well, what God is doing here is he's saying triumph is veiled. There's something veiled about this victory that you've been given. I can't fully tell you because I made a covenant with, I made a pact with the devil, okay? I made a pact with, I mean, there's only, the only person who should be making a pact with the devil is God himself. God intentionally de- de- um, decides not to tell Job what's going on. And yet he wants to tell Job 
what's going on, that he's one. And the implication for us, I mean, the, the, the way God speaks to us, I think God speaks to us in veiled triumph frequently. In fact, the greatest veiled triumph is that of the Son, whom saves us with his right hand, whom died a death on the cross, and humiliation, and defeat, and disgrace as a criminal, and then rose again after three days. And during that time, there was no victory. It was all death. It was all defeat. It was all shame and humiliation. And then Jesus, in his rising, revealed what triumph looks like to us, and what we have today. And so we celebrate First Advent. We celebrated First Advent today. But you know what? We're still waiting for the unveiling of Second Advent when Jesus returns. That triumph is still veiled. So God still speaks in veiled triumph today. And that means he's still speaking veiled triumph to you. And if you're suffering today, and you're suffering because of the consequences of your own decisions, or you're suffering because of the consequences of other people's decisions, or, and, or you're suffering because of a disease or mental, or mental health or depression or anxiety, would you recognize that God may not be able to fully show you the nature of the beast that you're encountering? Okay, But he wants to tell you, hey, you know what? There is a Leviathan out there, and he has power over that Leviathan. Because that triumph may be, may be veiled to you. But he wants you to know your suffering is not for nothing. Because you are encountering a supernatural opposition. And you may not be fully aware of it. But God is the one who defeats the sons of pride. And he's the one who chooses a champion. And I think, I, I think the, the ultimate reason why he didn't want Job to know that Job won is because Job would make it about him. <laughs> it would be a prideful thing. And he's like, you know what? I don't want that to happen. And Job is a type of Christ. Now God has chosen another champion to enter into the arena against Leviathan, against Satan. And then we trust that champion. And in doing so, we, we also have the privilege to defeat Leviathan as well, to defeat Satan. I am grateful for that. Um, I encourage you um, to take heart that in your suffering, um, in the anxiety, um, in the depression that you face, that it's not just about you. There are supernatural forces much bigger than you and an almost impenetrable enemy that God has power over. And we have power over him because of Jesus, our champion. Let's pray together. Father God, would you um, speak to us today? about your veiled triumph. God, in all these, the, in the mysteries of the way that you speak, you certainly say to us in the book of Job that you are God and that we are not. And yet you are also giving us a, a perhaps a deeper and fuller message about your son and about the spiritual forces of darkness that wage war against us, that may be, res, may be represented by this Leviathan this dragon of the sea that we hear about in Revelation, whom will be finally defeated. And so God, as we struggle today, and we think our struggle is against flesh and blood, we think our struggle is against ourselves, but Lord, would you help us to recognize that there are spiritual forces of evil 
that are much bigger than we are, that have uh, sneezings that flash forth light, that the mighty are even afraid of, but that you defeat and have triumphed over because of your son. Will we trust your champion, Jesus, whom defeated death and Satan in our behalf? And we celebrate the first advent today, and we look forward to expectantly the second advent. We pray this in your name. Amen.